Welcome to the Bird Life Podcast. My name is Adam, and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. This is episode 54. Normally at this time of the month, we would have our Birding Life show, but due to the long weekend, we were unable to record the episode. But you are in for a special treat today. Today's guest is Vion Fonzel, better known as Safari Vion. Vion is a YouTuber whose videos are not only lots of fun to watch, but also educate people about wildlife and conservation. In this episode, he tells us all about how we can improve our own bird videos. He also chats about the ins and outs of being a bird guide, as well as giving us insight into Afrikaans bird names. As always, The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes, as well as the Birdlasser bird logging app, Spot, Plot, Play a Part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing locations, the best resources and obviously where to find amazing birds. Be sure to check out our website, www.thebirdinglife.com, our YouTube channel, our youth podcast, as well as our various social media platforms. So, let's hear from today's guest, Vion Fansel. So, Vion, welcome to the show. Last time I saw you, we were on a buff-breasted sandpiper twitch up in Zululand. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Thanks for, for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that twitch was amazing. A very unexpected how quickly we actually managed to find that bird eh? <laughs> it was almost crazy like you just get there and there's all these guys looking through their bins and like oh there's the bird it was like that's exciting but it was a little bit of a, a down i mean you had this whole idea about how to do the video and that and we get there and it kind of just wrecked all of your plans yeah it was a, a bit of a, a anti-climax kind of getting there and the birds already been found and like within i think we spent like what 15 maybe 20 minutes there looking at the bird and showing uh, some of the other birders, the bird through the scope and whatnot, and then all of a sudden, like, okay, well, what do we do with the rest of the day? <laughs> so yeah, it was, but it was still good though. It's a good, good bird. That was number seven hundred and thirty-six for my for for my sub region list. So that was good. That's pretty insane, eh? So a lot of people probably wonder why why they spend so much money on a scope. But I just remember that day. This is an unpaid um, promotion now, but that Swarovski scope was absolutely fantastic. When you look through a Swarovski scope, you realize why you pay for the quality that you're paying for. It's amazing. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, it, it makes such a big difference. Especially, we were very lucky. The bird we were looking at was it wasn't that far from us. I mean, what 20, 25 meters maybe. But as soon as you start looking at birds much further away, if you're birding in a forest kind of area where there's a lot less light to work with, something or good quality optics with something like Swarovski, it just makes the world a difference. I've done probably about ninety percent of my my bird guided tours with Swarovski optics, and it just it makes such a big difference. So you're probably best known for your YouTube channel, Safari Vion, but the Safari Vion brand is so much more than just the YouTube channel. Um, you're on Facebook, you're on Instagram, you have an awesome website, and you're even on TikTok. So tell us about the brand and how it started. Yeah, I've always had a great interest in nature, and I, I got into wildlife photography quite early on in my guiding career. And then that kind of progressed or transgressed into creating video content and I needed a place to post it and YouTube is obviously one of the better platforms for posting video content. So with the Safari Vion brand, my YouTube platform is the main platform that I'm trying to grow and I basically just use all the other platforms like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and whatever 
in their own native ways to try and promote my YouTube brand and get people to to go to my YouTube channel itself because that's where I'm most passionate about creating video content on different different topics like photography and oh, conservation and just interesting facts and information about animals. So so yeah, the Safarian brand essentially is about all things Africa. Um, so yeah, from travel and photography to conservation and creating awareness on specific conservation initiatives. So yeah, that's kind of what I'm really trying to focus on. And have you done any um, training in terms of videography or is just something that you self-taught? Yeah, I haven't done any training whatsoever, to be honest. I've, everything is just self-taught, watching a lot of YouTube tutorials and doing short courses and and that kind of thing online. But yeah, not, not so much in any recognized, uh, established uh, schools or universities or anything like that. And then in terms of equipment, what is your setup you're using at the moment for your filming? Well, uh, because everything is self-funded, it's quite a, a budget setup, <laughs> if you want to term it like that. So I've got a an Canon EOS 77D body, so which is quite a nice intermediate level type body. And then I've got the, the, the Canon 100 to 400 uh, Mark II zoom lens, which I find to be absolutely spectacular. Um, and then, yeah, then I just uh, use uh, a Rode VideoMic Pro as an external shotgun mic to get that clear and crisp audio, especially when you're recording calling birds and that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, that's pretty much the standard setup. I use that for my photography and also for the videos. And, uh, yeah, I'm playing around with the, with the idea of getting into some mirrorless technology, but that's a little pricey at the moment. So we're just kind of putting that on the wish list for now. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of your content is actually your TikTok channel. It's so out there so unusual it's so different to the rest of your content i thought it'd be the same as you do on the rest of the place but it's so funny so for those who have never gone and checked out your tiktok channel i'm gonna encourage you to check it out but give them a little bit of a taste what kind of um, material will they they get on that channel just to to refer back to what i mentioned earlier i use all the other platforms to to get people to go to my youtube channel and the best way to do that is to to create content that's native or that's kind of written in the language of that platform. So Instagram, for example, is very photographic related, so good quality photographs. Facebook, you can do a lot of longer form writing or written content. And so TikTok, what does really what what really does well on TikTok at the moment is very comical type content. So I do a little series that I call like my um, actual questions on Safari. Uh, so, for example, one of my videos, I, I pretend to be a guest and also the guide in the same scene, but guests asking questions like, um, do hippos lay eggs or in, do giraffes hunt in packs or are elephants allowed to push over trees? So it's more like that, that comical side of things. And, uh, yeah, that seems to be doing quite well, especially with or even with people that aren't interested in conservation or anything. They find it comical, so they have been attracting a lot of that kind of audience as well. And Hopefully, I can use that to eventually get people to to kind of go to the YouTube channel and also get more conservation-related content on their screens, if that makes sense. So, yeah, that's interesting. That's what I was actually just thinking when you were talk, talking about the TikTok idea, that you've got a lot of people that go on there. You get tons of likes, people that have probably, you know, they're not necessarily birders or people that are interested in animals or conservation. They happen to stumble across your channel and they have a good laugh on that. So, you know, I, I just think there's a lot of your content is quite out there. It's, it's, it connects ordinary people with conservation awareness. And, you know, what is your thinking behind that, you know, in terms of how you've done your channel? Because a lot of your channel is very accessible. It's, you know, even if somebody has not 
doesn't have a deep knowledge of of wildlife and conservation and they stumble across your channel whether it's on tiktok or youtube or whatever it's all very accessible what what is your your thinking behind it because you've obviously got a very big conservation focus behind what you do so the thing is conservation has been in my family for years and i i will talk about it a bit later obviously but i grew up on the on a nature reserve and that kind of thing and i've always found a lot of uh social media platforms or different YouTube channels and all of that and whatever. I find it very difficult sometimes to follow or understand because you'll have guys writing articles or talking about specific subjects and they get very scientific or they go into very detail on specific things. And if you're not someone who's into nature or if you're not a specific birder or someone who's into reptiles, whatever, if you stumble upon a piece of content that's in that kind of topic or in that line of work, then if, if it's not simple enough to understand, people are just going to kind of scroll by and go on to the next piece of content. So what I really try and do with the brand is, like I say, my, my brand is about all things Africa. And I have a very specific focus on conservation because it's near and dear to my heart. And especially the younger and the future generations, they're the future of our conservation that we have on this planet. And by making content that's more accessible and more understandable and also content that's that's a bit more lighthearted at times depending on which platform you are you're going to get a greater following or you're going to get a greater amount of people that will be interested in the content so yeah i guess it's more about just reaching the masses and out of the masses hopefully a handful of those people will uh, a penny will drop somewhere and they'll actually get interested in your content and kind of go a bit further into detail with with some of whatever you or whatever content you produce after that yeah, so more and more people I've noticed on YouTube and Facebook and that are starting to, you know, even film birds and trying out this bird photography stuff. And I know photographing birds is incredibly difficult, but filming them is a whole another level of difficulty, like a new level altogether. So what advice would you give to people that want to improve their filming skills? Yeah, no, so I, I totally agree with you. Photo- photography is one thing, but, but filming birds is, is something completely different. And again, I agree with you. I've seen a lot more in birding circles or going to birding spots or destinations where you often come across other birders in groups. People are starting to focus slowly more and more on video because you get the actual the, the calling or the, the sound of the bird whilst you get footage of it and that kind of thing and you get more of the behavior and the interaction of different species and so I think it brings just a whole new dynamic to birding but especially when you bring telephoto quality or telephoto lenses and DSLR bodies and that kind of thing and you use that to create your films it, it does make it more difficult because you don't have that high grade professional equipment but there are ways to work around it so for me personally it uh, first of all it depends on what content you want um if you just want uh, to get specific behavior to use it as an id feature then obviously you don't need that high kind of quality content like 4k quality or whatever so but if you want to create youtube videos and talk about a specific species and 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 kind of create a bit of awareness or that kind of thing, then obviously you're going to want something higher quality. So figure out what kind of quality content you want. And then I would say a sturdy tripod is, it's it's a must. Like you can't get footage of birds by free holding uh, or just by handheld uh, footage. It's just not going to work. And then I would invest in the lens before I invest in a good quality body. So getting a good quality lens with something that's got like 400 plus zoom capability 
uh, that would also, I would say, be a must if you want to get good quality content of birds. Because as you know, and as anybody listening to this podcast uh, who's a birder would know, you don't always get too close to the birds. And um, yeah, if you're going to have a 300 mil lens or less, you're going you're gonna to struggle getting good quality content. And then sound is, is more important than people think. If you're going to look at YouTube videos, the first thing you look at is the type of content. And then if the sound is horrible, then you might skip on to the next video and look for something with better sound or that kind of thing. So I feel it's vital to have a shotgun mic that you can mount on top of your camera just so that you don't get the recording of the focusing motors and the stabilization motors in your lens and that kind of thing. And it also just gets more crisp and clear audio for your footage and then it's just about getting out there and just practice just go out in the field and practice 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 learn bird behavior and try and figure out where birds are going to come in and out of their nests and that kind of thing and then yeah like i said for me personally i watched a lot of youtube tutorials and read blog articles and did online courses so just kind of gather as much information and knowledge as you can and try and implement that in the field yeah, so let's push the rewind button a bit. We spoke a little bit, you mentioned earlier a little bit about growing up in the bush. Um, you grew up on a big five game reserve in, Limp- in Lim- the Limpopo province of South Africa. That's not a bad place to grow up. So tell us about this part of your life and how your, your passion for nature was developed. Yeah, Limpopo is amazing. Like that's, that's proper bush felt. And I don't think you're going to find anything anywhere else close to that. Everything else is unique, but Limpopo is, is special. Um, so I grew up on Mabula Big Five Game Reserve, just outside of a small town called Warmbaths or Bella Bella, as it's now known. And yeah, my dad used to be the reserve manager and he's a, a nature conservationist or an ecologist by trade. And so my interest for nature started at a very young age and my dad kind of really coached me and helped me along from a very young age. So my dad being mainly focused on plants, trees being his biggest passion, I kind of from a young age started with trees and the scientific names and that like the age of 10, I could say the scientific names of most trees you find in Limpopo, which I've forgotten since. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I just went through the motions. Being on the reserve, that's a perfect environment for growing up as a young nature enthusiast. So I went through be enjoying the mammals and the plants to getting into insects. And eventually at the age of 13, I found birds. And I was just absolutely awestruck by the diversity that we get in Southern Africa, not even to mention the world, and just the amount of birds that I could see on the reserve and their colors and their breeding displays and that kind of thing. And yeah, it kind of just took off from there. I knew from a a very young age, I wanted to be a a nature guide. And again, being on the reserve did help a lot with that. So I I owe a lot, uh, pretty much everything of where I am and what I've achieved up until now to, I owe it to my dad and to the, the early foundation years of growing up on the reserve. So a lot of people obviously, you know, look at your your stuff and they might not know that you're a birder because your stuff is very general in terms of nature and that type of thing. But you're a really good birder. You spoke about the amount of birds you've seen earlier. What are some of the places that you've been able to see as a birder? Because it's really, it's always something that's interesting. You know, when you bird, you get to see places that you might not normally see. And what are some of these places that you've been able to see as a birder? What what have been some of the highlights? Yeah, cool. So I'd say a lot of the, the, the highlights of these areas that I've been in, I've traveled Southern Africa quite extensively when I was doing bird guided tours for birding eco tours and the main area that I focused on was our southern African countries and I've been to North America a couple of times as well and I must say I have a deep love and passion for Namibia 
especially the northern reaches of Namibia, but even starting in the Valfus Bay area and you're exploring the sand dunes looking for stuff like Dune Lark and you're going to Spitzkopper looking for Hereri Chat all the way up to the northern section where you're on the Kavango or the Zambezi rivers and you're looking at pulse fishing out at night from a boat or African skimmers in the sunset. Like I just, I love Namibia. It's just such a diverse and beautiful country. The culture and the people there are amazing. And it's quite an easy country to travel to, especially as a South African. So North America would have to be another another close favorite of mine because I've, I've been there a couple of times and just encountering completely different bird families and seeing something that's completely new, uh, stuff like snowy owls and Florida scrub jays and pileated woodpeckers. I mean, that's a huge woodpecker. Like it just, it's, it just feeds the soul when you're completely in a different area. So I'd have to say that's, yeah, those are pretty much some of my favorite areas I've been in. Eh? Yeah, tell us that story about the snowy owl. I think you mentioned to me when we were together. Tell us the story about seeing the snowy owl. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was a good one. Uh, we I went up for a conference. The, some of the birders listening here might know the, the biggest week in American birding. I'm actually wearing my T-shirt right now. And uh, it's a festival that runs for about 10 days on Lake Erie. So it's, it mainly focuses on the warbler migration as birds travel north come down, they come down to the woodlots on Lake Erie before they cross over to Canada. And by the time we were there in May, majority of the, the snowy owls were supposed to be much further north. And we were at the festival in the mornings we do birding, in the afternoons we're at the stands promoting the business. And one of the, the guides from one of the other companies came and he told us that, listen, he found the snowy owl. And at first we didn't believe him because like, haha, yeah, we're South African birders. We haven't seen the snowy owl. And they're just like pulling a fast one on us. But eventually we got some information on where the bird was. And we, we spent quite a bit of time, went very early in the morning when it was still dark and we were driving around in this farmland kind of area, just looking for the bird, looking for the bird. And just about every time we saw something white on the ground, we freaked out and your heart would sink a little. You're thinking it's a snowy owl and then it's like a, a pick and pay packet that's in the field. And uh, long story short, eventually we actually found the bird and we saw it quite distant in the field, got good looks at it with, a, with our Swarovski scopes, but um, it was still quite far. And then out of nowhere, this bird just decided to come closer to us and he flew to a power line pole uh, above the car that we were parked at, um, sitting probably oh, 15, 20 meters from us. And we got to see this bird spectacularly, a beautiful male snowy owl. And that's hands down one of the best birds I've ever seen. And just the whole experience around it and so on. So, yeah, that's that's the story, eh? That's so cool. And something interesting, also the pileated woodpecker, I hope I'm saying that right, is actually the American Birding Association's 2021 Bird of the Year. So it's interesting that you should mention that bird. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know that. But, yeah, that's to me, it's just the size of the bird. If you actually get to see a pileated woodpecker, like in your mind you'd think it's a hardida that's flying overhead. Um, it's not quite as big as a hardida, but it's just it's this massive, massive woodpecker. They're really cool. <laughs> so you're not working specifically as a as a bird guide right now. You a little bit more a little bit more general in terms of your guiding at the moment. But you work at Nambiti Private Game Reserve near Ladysmith. What is Nambiti like as a birding destination? Yeah, so Nambiti. Um, Nambiti is a good spot, I must say. It's 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 not the kind of place you'll go to for for specific, like a, if you're going to plan a specific bird watching weekend, I wouldn't say if you're a hardcore birder, then Nambiti would be the place that you're going to. But especially if you're traveling with family and you and you want the family to enjoy a bit more of general game viewing and that kind of thing, whilst you squeeze in a bit of birding 
on the game drives, that's the perfect spot. Nambidi focuses a bit more on their big five safaris that they do, but some of the specials on the reserve are great. You get like African grass owl and marsh owl, and there's a small breeding population of southern bald ibis there, secretary birds, there's three vulture species there. Um, and we actually just last week we recorded Cape Shovel and Olive Bushrike, which is a little odd for the reserve to have them there, but there's a good mix of habitat from grassland, big open grassland areas. So for all the, the cesticulars and we've actually been getting a lot of crakes this season and you've got all the way down into the valleys with, with the thick vegetation, acacia woodland, there's a huge river system that comes through the reserve and a lot of dams. So the diversity is quite quite good. Uh, I think the reserve hosts a list of just over 220 species. So if you're looking for a weekend's birding, that's it's it's not a bad spot to go to, really. And there's a nice southern bald ibis colony there, if I remember correctly. Yes, yeah. I think I'm, I'm not 100% sure on the population itself, but I think it's something like 50 breeding pairs or so, which is one of the larger ones in the country. And yeah, it's it's awesome to see them when you're out in the open plains in the morning. They often fly overhead and they go out to forage and you get to see them come back to roost at the waterfall along the cliff faces in the in the evening so it's it's really really good seeing them yeah but i think the thing with nbt that makes it amazing is it's just the overall experience i mean i've been there a couple of times started in Mzolo Zolo when i was there and just the experience of being in the reserve and i just think it's an amazing place to visit if you do get the chance oh definitely 100 percent. and what's nice about it is you don't drive yourself around you've got a guide that drives you everywhere you're in a big open land cruiser so you don't have the confines of uh, a car or obstructions of window pillars and that kind of thing. And and I think what also makes Mbiti really nice is it's very accessible either from Durban or Joburg because it's I think it's like four hours from Johannesburg and three hours from Durban. So it's also a nice halfway stopover point if, you, if you're looking for something like that, yeah. Join BirdLife South Africa on 27 and 28 May 2021 for the fifth virtual Learn About Birds or Lab conference. Attend both the Science and Layman's Lab for just 800 Rand or enjoy four world-class Layman's Lab lectures for just 350 Rand. For more information, visit the BirdLife South Africa website or email lab2021 at birdlife.org.za. Lab is co-hosted by BirdLife South Africa and the Fitzpatrick Institute of African Ornithology. Proceeds from this event will go towards conserving South Africa's most threatened birds and their ecosystems. So you've worked as a professional bird guide before. A lot of young birders dream of becoming bird guides. So for the sake of the younger birds especially, how did this how did this journey look to becoming a bird guide and what practical advice would you give to those who wish to have a, a future in the guiding industry? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, funny enough, I actually didn't even think of becoming a bird guide when, when I started as a birder or even when I started as a guide. I did the, the regular Fagaza training and became a nature guide and worked at a few lodges uh, starting on Nambitu and then went to the low felt a bit. And then a friend of mine who a lot of the listeners might know, Jason Boyce, he, he was working for Birding Ecotours at the time and they were looking for a freelance guide and he came to me and asked if I'm willing to do some guiding for them in the Kruger area. And it was actually quite funny because I've had this deep passion for birding since I was 13 and I mean by that stage I was birding for what six or seven years even more by the time he approached me and it never crossed my mind to actually become a bird guide. I never thought it could be an actual career, <laughs> which is very weird. But anyways, getting into it, I would say that starting young plays a big role. A lot of the birders that I know that are bird guides, a lot of the, the much better ones, they've been birding from a very young age and they started even before I started. Yeah, getting to learn the, the birds in your specific area and really getting to know them really well and then kind of going further afield and 
just increasing your knowledge that you can have on birds is like it's probably one of the most important things you can do because if you look at someone like uh, Joshua Olszewski at the moment who's uh, finishing his guiding qualification one of the best young birders in the country at the moment and he can name every bird's scientific name and it's you don't necessarily need to go now and learn every scientific name of the bird, but just that, that hunger to learn and to know more and just to increase your knowledge is, is very important. So just don't get complacent. So I would say just get out in the field and bird a lot. Just go and look at birds and get to know how to identify the birds practically and, and how to describe them in a very short and practical way so that when you describe a bird to someone else and they can understand what you're talking about and and what, you, what you're looking at. And then another thing that got me when I started birding was the different taxonomies. Uh, if you look at, we use the IOC taxonomy in, in Southern Africa. And then in North America, people there use the, the Clements taxonomy. You'll have the same bird, but different common names for the bird. And that sometimes makes it a, a little difficult. So if you, at the later stages of your birding career and you're getting into becoming a guide, that's also very important to know, I'd say. And then... If you're still in school, especially look at doing some of the Fagaza short courses that they have for the younger adult. Getting into the, the Fagaza side of things is very important because to legally guide in the country, you have to be registered with Fagaza to, so that you can register with the government. So getting that done as soon as you can and getting that out of the way is, is very important. But yeah, just practice your, your practical guiding skills, learning the bird calls. And I spent a lot of time on my app and I would repeat bird calls all the time all the time and i'd say up the the bird names aloud and i'd have post-it notes all over my room with different bird names and where you find them and and that kind of thing so yeah just constantly learning and, and getting deeper into the detail of specific birds that's it's very important so what has been your most rewarding experience as a bird guide <sighs> that's a that's a difficult one i can't necessarily put it down to just one experience but just to think of a few short ones uh, I, I had a guest that's traveled the world quite extensively doing birding tours and so on and he was I think 93 at the stage and I was still based in Cape Town and he needed only four more bird species to reach 8,000 and I mean that's ridiculous imagine seeing 8,000 of the world's bird species and um, we went on a, a day trip up uh, West Coast National Park and looking for Black Harrier and a few of the specials up there. And we actually managed to get him up to 8,000. I think we got him to like 8,003. And it was just amazing getting this 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 uh, giant of a birder with so much more experience and so many years on top of me to get him to 8,000. That was just so rewarding. And then one thing I've always wanted to do is travel internationally to a different continent. So getting to do some birding tours and conferences in North America has been absolutely amazing and then also giving back uh, from a conservation perspective working with uh, BirdLife South Africa on some of their flock events and that kind of thing I've actually absolutely loved being involved with those and getting to know the birders and yeah just being out making friends in the birding community yeah I love it and I think a lot of these young birders when they think of going into guiding it's like oh my word it's gonna be amazing it's just gonna be this easiest job in the world <laughs> but what are some of the challenges that come with guiding <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, I must be honest, that's also kind of what, I, I wouldn't say I thought it was the easiest job in the world, but I did think it was all uh, unicorns and rainbows when I started the job, uh, or before I started the job. And I must say, it's it's definitely been the most challenging type of guiding that I've ever done, because I've, I've worked at lodges and tour companies and that kind of thing. And, and doing the bird guiding is definitely the most challenging, because the thing is, you travel a lot and traveling is cool, but if you're traveling 
I mean, I know some bird guides travel seven to eight months of the year and that's outside of the country. And when you're younger, that's great. But as soon as you start getting a girlfriend or want to start setting down roots or that kind of thing, the travel can get to you a little bit. And uh, what also makes the bird guiding very tough is you're often alone. So if you're with clients in Namibia, for example, you don't have the support of other staff or team members around you or that kind of thing. So you're the man on the ground. You have to sort out clients that get sick and you have to deal with clients that uh, have problems with each other and you have to now find all the special birds in between and you have to do six hours of driving a day so you literally do absolutely everything and I think one of the big things that's that's often difficult to handle on birding tours is dealing with the various personalities and managing that on tour I've had many clients before that they're nice people but their personalities would clash so you would kind of have to manage that and put this person at the back of the vehicle and this person in the front and rotate them and and just being able to do that and funny enough balancing photographers and and birders i've often had clients on tour where the one couple are so into their photography they don't even have binoculars and then you have birders that don't even have cameras and they're just there to enjoy the birds and often because their their opinion on on how they approach birding differs they they kind of clash quite a bit because the photographer would like to get a bit closer to the bird and the birder is scared that scared that he's going to chase the bird so you're also kind of managing that and managing people's expectations and there's the physical health and the mental health there's no time for exercising and you don't have a lot of time for breaks when you're doing an 18-day tour so yeah there's quite a bit of it but that being said even though there's a lot of challenges that that come your way it is very rewarding and it is amazing being able to take people into some of these amazing spots and seeing these birds that you wouldn't see otherwise. So let's chat about that. How do you deal with the pressures that come with guiding? Because I can imagine guests have paid big money to come on the tour and they expect to see birds. I just was thinking like of a scenario, for example, the green bar, but you only get to see in South Africa, in, in Goya. So you, let's say you book them out for a morning to go there. You've got that one morning to see the bird and there's almost this expectation that we're going to see the bird. And we know how birds are. You don't always get to see the bird. But how you deal with the pressures that come with with guiding yeah that's (laughs) that that can sometimes be a tough one if you're thinking of the amount of money that these people are spending and first of all i'd say it's just working your backside off like literally just pouring your everything into this tour or into this specific birding spot for example like the green bar but looking for that but going hand in hand with that is managing people's expectations you have to constantly communicate with people with the fact that listen, you might not get to see this bird. It is quite a rare bird. And like, I, I just constantly communicate that to the people, not to, to, to necessarily slack off. And if I don't find the bird, then they'll be fine with it. But it's more of like, just to kind of manage their expectations so that they don't get this overexcitement so hyped up and so fixated on this bird that if you don't find it, they it, it ruins the whole tour for them. I've had clients like that before where they've got three species that they want to see out of the 18-day tour. And if they don't see all three of those, they're not going to be happy. So just kind of managing people's expectations. But what also really helps with that is like I often, especially going to Nguyen Forest, that kind of thing, I use the local guides, the bird life guides because they're also really good at finding the birds. So it takes a bit of pressure off me, but it also supports them financially and that kind of thing. And just constantly studying up on the specials and the different areas and their movements and where have local birders been reporting them and using stuff like um, uh, Bird Lasso or, or the, the SABAP2 project to, to kind of figure out where the birds are moving and that kind of thing. Yeah, but if you if you truly just do your best and you put a lot of hard work in trying to find this bird for the guests, 
when you do find it, then they, they're very appreciative of it and, and they really do enjoy the bird. But if you don't find the bird, then nine times out of the 10, they don't understand because they could actually see that you put in the work to try and find it. But yeah, it does. It is challenging sometimes because yeah, birds have wings and they fly and they don't always sit where you want them to sit. Eh? <laughs> yeah. So you've spoken about the responsibility that you have as a guide, but what about the guests? You know, when, when guests are planning a trip over and they're looking at using a guide, what sort of preparation do you think guests could put in to ensure that their trip is more successful? Yeah, I'd say one of the big things is just studying up on the trip beforehand. Eh? Just uh, get as much material as you can. So if you're traveling to a different country, try and figure out what the best field guide is for that country and uh, try and buy that online and just spend a lot of time paging through the book and figuring out which species you could expect to see. Stuff like making a, a bit of a wish list for the guide because then the guides can let you know, okay, these species are out of the equation or these are better chances than others. And then using, I mean, we live in a day and age where there's so many tools available that we can learn more about birds. And especially if you're traveling to areas where you've never been. So stuff like bird lasso or even eBird is really good if you're traveling abroad. So yeah, just using all of these tools and doing a lot of studying up beforehand, I usually find that guests that do that on my tours, they have a much greater or more enjoyable experience compared to guests that just arrived there and haven't done any preparation. Okay, so now I'm going to give you the opportunity to speak on behalf of every single bird guide in the world right now. So the responsibility is all on your shoulders right now. Do you feel it? <laughs> I do. That's, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Let me ask you this question. What are some things that you feel that every bird guide wishes their guests knew? Yeah, that's um, <laughs> so. Yeah, considering the, the the responsibility that's on my shoulders, I would have to say that guests need to know that birds don't read books, and even though the book says this, their behaviour or whatever they're doing could be that. Guests just need to realise that. As a guide, you obviously do whatever you can and you do your best to find birds and that kind of thing. But birds fly away and they're not always in the key areas that they usually are and that kind of thing. So giving giving guides a bit of slack and just uh, and just trusting their judgments and their birding skills, I would say that will go a long way. So you've told us about the most rewarding experience that you've had as a guide or the most rewarding experiences, let's say. So let's now chat about... What is the most challenging experience you've, that you've had as a bird guide? <laughs> yeah, so that, that's, that's a, good, a good one, a good question. I, I'd have to say, hands down, one of the, the most challenging experiences I've had is on one of my Namibia tours that I've had. And I, I think I've told you the story before, but I had this client that uh, arrived on the tour and a couple of days in, the client started showing a little odd behavior. Like we'd go look for dune lock and this client would be dragging their camera through the sand and sit plonking down on the sand when we're looking at birds. And something was just completely off. And yeah, eventually when um, when I wanted to get a doctor involved and kind of just make sure that this client's okay before we travel further into the country, we realized that the client was drinking quite a bit and it made things quite difficult because this client had a roommate and it affected things for the roommate and now we had to travel with a strong client but in between all of that I needed to try and find uh, someone to uh, or I needed to try and find the specials for each spot that we're traveling to because we only spent a day or two days in a specific spot for the specials of that area and so long story short for a couple of days I had to bring this client along constantly looking after this client and considering the, the health of the client but also finding birds for the rest of the group and throughout this whole situation this is where 
the challenging bit of a bird guide comes in is I was the only man on the ground and I was the only one in the in the area that could actually do something about it. It was quite a busy season. All the freelance guides were busy and we couldn't get anybody to come in and help. So long story short, I actually eventually had to fly my mom from from South Africa over to Namibia to basically come and check this client out of our hospital and chaperone the client back to Vintuk, then Joburg, and to make sure this client get back, gets back in America. And as soon as that happened and the, and the responsibility per se was kind of off my shoulders, I was sick for two days. I was just so stressed out and my body was just reacting very badly to all of that stress. So yeah, I'd have to say that is hands down the worst experience I've ever had. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> the joys of guiding. <laughs> the joys of guiding. The good thing though is, is we managed to find, uh, I'd say 95% of the specials that the rest of the group was looking for. So it actually turned out quite well. So here's a little bit more of a serious question. Right now, we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. What things do you feel that the AV tourism industry can do right now to best navigate the season? Sure. Adam, that's a tough one, eh? I, th- I think uh, so many would not think. I know that so many businesses have been affected so negatively. And I don't think there's anything that I can say really that hasn't been said or hasn't been done. But from my personal experience and from what I think that would work really well or that does work really well is just creating a lot of content on social media. Because the big thing now is especially from an international perspective, obviously people can't travel and they can't get to their birding sites and do the stuff that they want to do. But if you can just constantly show what you have to to offer and what people can expect from you as a guide or as a lodge or as a business or whatever, once travel opens up, then they'll they'll know what to expect from you and they can book through you. So if you're going to have a stronger online presence compared to some of your competitors or that kind of thing, that's going to be very, very important. It's going to make a big difference. I mean, look at the the conservation conversations that BirdLife's been doing. And if you look at places like uh, Mala Mala, the lodges in the, the Lofelt area, like they've been doing these daily videos and stuff like that. So as soon as, as tourism is going to open up, or specifically AV tourism in this case, the, the, the companies or the people that's been marketing themselves a lot more that, or that's had a much bigger online presence uh, they are going to be the people that's going to get most of the, the birders that's coming over or that wants to start traveling again because they've had the biggest presence online. So like I said, there's a lot of other things that I think people have mentioned that uh, that's also know better than I do. But I think just specifically from a, a marketing perspective, just having a, 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 a big online presence and just uh, doing real raw content on all your channels is just vital at the moment. So I love the fact that in South Africa, we have such a great diversity. It's one of the things that I make, think makes our country so amazing. We have 11 official languages for those who don't know. And one of the languages we speak in South Africa is Afrikaans, okay? I really love the Afrikaans bird names because they are super descriptive. I asked you ahead of this interview to think of your five favorite Afrikaans bird names and to tell us why. So I'm going to let you tell us your five favorite Afrikaans bird names and why you think those names are freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I, I love the Afrikaans language. Grew up Afrikaans and everything, so started learning bird names in Afrikaans when I started as a birder. I had to sit and think about this one for a while, though. It took me a while to, to come up with a few, a few bird names, because if you think about it, uh, I find, the, the like you said, the descriptive names in Afrikaans, I find it often so much better than in English, because in English... Most birds, when they were classified back in the day, they were caught or shot or something, and they were named when the bird was in hand. So take something like the short-clawed lark, for example. I mean, you're not going to see the short-claw on the lark to use that as an ID feature. 
And I find that the Afrikaans is a bit more descriptive because uh, a lot of the Afrikaans just came from after all of these classifications from uh, what they hear. So onomatopoeic sounds and, and that kind of thing. So my list would have to be uh, starting off with Bok Makiri. And the main reason I just love the Bok Makiri is because every time you tell uh, a foreigner the direct English translation for Bok Makiri, it makes everybody laugh. So Bok Makiri, for anybody who doesn't know the direct translation, translates to Buck Mother Walking Stick. <laughs> and I absolutely, I absolutely love that because, I mean, you're not going to name that in English. Then I would say the second one I'd have to say is Bromfool. So do you know what a Bromfool is, Adam? Ek Vietni. Yeah. <laughs> so a Bromfool is the Afrikaans for Southern Ground Hornbill. And brom just refers to that deep boo, 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 boo. Oh, I can't even make the sound, but that very deep kind of call that they do. So that's the brom. And then I would have to say Kalvang Falk. Kalvang Falk is my third one. Uh, that's an African harrier hawk. So again, just very descriptive of, of the actual face. Kalvang referring to the naked skin on the, on the cheek. And then I was going through a few bird names and then I came across Khompo. Uh, do you know what Khompo is, maybe? I've got no idea. <laughs> so Khompo is a Cory Bustard. And um, so Po is is like a peacock, or it refers to peacock. And then Khom, uh, well, Afrikaans Khom actually means glue, but the Khom that they're using here, it's more to, to describe that very raspy call that the, that the Khompo does. Um, or that the Cory Buster does. So that's that's the one I like there. And then I'd say my number five one would have to be Klein Doberki. So Klein Doberki is little grebe. And so a Doberki in Afrikaans, or sorry, a Doberki in English is just that, that white and red little fish bobber that you would use in the traditional kind of way of fishing. And um, I mean, that's so descriptive of the behavior of the bird constantly going down and coming back up and this tiny little thing floating on top of the water. So yeah, I think Afrikaans people just know how to describe bird calls, key ID features and just interesting behavior. Afrikaans is cool. <laughs> I think we need to do a whole YouTube episode on Afrikaans bird names. I think it'd be so much fun. Yeah, I, th I think that's a good idea. Speaking of all the platforms, I think TikTok would also be good for this. Hey? The, the, the comical side of it. Good. <laughs> So my two favorite are actually Bos Misikant. I just think that's such a descriptive word. When I actually see a darkback weaver, the first thing and I hear it calling, I, honestly, I'm, an, I'm a pure Engelsman, but I think the first thing I think is Bos Misikant because it's, it's like a bush musician. It's amazing. Then the other one is, I'm probably going to say this, I'm probably going to say this wrong, but this, what this, the, the name of the sesticular is in Africa, it's a, a Ting Tinky, I think is how you say it. Yes, 100% Ting Tinky. It's so awesome. But yeah, it's been, Vion, it's been tons of fun chatting. I know we could, I could chat for another 15, 20 minutes. It's been lots of fun. And I really encourage people to check out your platforms. Um, your TikTok is my favorite, I must just say. I, 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 I binge watch your TikTok videos, but your YouTube is cool. And I just encourage people to check it out. So if somebody wants to connect with you and your brand, how do they go around it? Yeah, cool. Thanks. First of all, I just want to say thanks, Adam. Uh, your, it means a lot to me saying that. And yeah, I really enjoy what you guys are doing as well yeah you guys are definitely taking big strides in the birding community in in south africa specifically but yeah mainly just the, people can either go to my website uh, safarivian.com uh, vian spelled with a w and they'll find blog articles and all my social media links uh, over there or they can simply just search safari vian one word in all uh, social media platforms so i'm on youtube twitter instagram facebook tiktok linkedin 
yeah, just any platform. If if you're there, just search Safari Beyond. Awesome, man. I'll pop all those links into the comment section. But thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it, bro. Yeah, thanks, Adam. I really appreciate it. Have a have a, a good one, eh? We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books to help get all the best birding resources into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life Project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link in either the comment section of this podcast or in our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Be sure to head over to our website www.thebirdinglife.com and check out all the exciting resources that we have on our website, including our exciting forum section to connect you with the world of birding, birders, and exciting birds out there. Do not forget to follow The Birding Life on Instagram and Facebook. We really appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Birdlasser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a lifeless while playing your part in social conservation. As well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.